Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. And my guest is uh, Andrea Graham. She's a professor at Princeton. She's a uh, part of the program in Global Health, Immunity and Disease Ecology. So we're going to talk about the ecology and evolutionary biology, uh, known as the EEB, and uh, go over her research. So, Andrea, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. If you would tell me about your research, what are you focused on? So the, the main thing that my research aims to understand is heterogeneity among individuals in how their immune systems work. And this means that I'm really interested in why people differ so much in susceptibility to infectious diseases. And of course, COVID-19 has made headline news of that kind of variation among individuals in how sick they get when they're exposed to the same infectious disease. But I'm also interested in why individuals vary so much in their propensity to get autoimmune conditions. So it's not just infectious diseases, but also autoimmune and other inflammatory diseases. So why do hosts vary so much is the central question guiding my research. Well, when you say they vary, what, what, are you looking at it just in the context of disease or one disease, or are you looking at just all the manifestations of phenotype that different creatures have? Well, I guess there are lots of different contexts in which I look at it, but one context is I might focus on a particular kind of parasitic infection. I've worked on malaria. I've also worked on lots of parasitic worms. And what I try to hone in on is differences in the way the immune system detects those parasites when they enter the body, as well as differences in the strength of the response that gets induced to clear parasites. Hosts vary hugely in, in their capacity to detect and respond to even widely prevalent parasites. Okay, so so you're looking at how hosts, I guess, react to parasites. What kind of parasites, where do they go in the host? And you know, what are some of the defense mechanisms or the reactions to them? 
Okay, yeah, so this will let me unpack your phenotype question, I think, a little bit. So let's focus on parasitic worms, because I work on those most of all. So I'm really interested in these little animals, these worms that live inside the guts, especially of so many humans and other animals on Earth. When the immune system detects an invasion by one of these worms, like a host has ingested egg of a worm and it's hatched, and now the the larval worm is migrating around inside the belly, the immune system can detect this and start mounting what immunologists shorthand is a weep and sweep immune response, basically mobilizing cells of the immune system as well as gut physiology in ways that make for lots of mucus and other liquids on the surface of the gut and sweep, which is like a peristalsis motion to get the worms to let go and, and head toward the exit, if you will. So some hosts, getting back to this heterogeneity idea, some hosts detect worms even when they're at really low doses and then make tons and tons of mucus and get peristalsis going and chuck the worms out. Other hosts are much slower to detect that the worms are even present. And then even once they detect them, they don't make such a strong weep and sweep immune response. And the host ends up with a a lot of worms living a long time in the belly. So you see what I mean? There are these extremes. And then you can find, find all kinds of hosts who do everything in between. But you have the really fast expelling hosts and then the slower expelling hosts. And I'm super interested in why we have both of those kinds of hosts and everybody in between in every natural pe- population anyone's studied. Is this for the same kind of worm or for different kinds of worms? You can narrow your focus and just study one species of worm at a time if you like. Yep. But similar patterns pertain no matter what worm species you want to look at. Well, it'd just be less confounding if you have like the ABC worm and it infects like three different types of creatures. And you can see the three different creatures have a different response to it. It mm-hmm. might make it a little easier to study. You know? Some worms use many different types of hosts. It's true. So what, I don't know, what do you think of the differences? Like just on the surface, I'm sure you found something, you know, why these hosts respond differently. Um, you know, like the worms that you study, do they end up killing the hosts or do they just kind of parasitically feed off of them for a long time and it's commensal or, you know, how do they, like, what's an example? A little bit more of the latter, that in general, these, especially the gastrointestinal worms that I have uh, was talking about in my previous response, they tend to be a chronic drain of host resources. Maybe they cause some chronic bleeding, but they don't tend to kill. So it's it's a real cause of chronic disease in people around the globe. And I should say that over a billion people have these kinds of infections. So even though it's sort of a chronic drain on the, on health for the most part, it is affecting an awful lot of people on earth. So one of the things I find most interesting about heterogeneity among hosts in how well they fight off worms is that by looking to the ecological and evolutionary roots of that heterogeneity, we get a lot of insight. So one of one of the things that I have discovered over the course of my career is that hosts actually vary a lot in the extent to which they respond to any kind of infectious reagent. It's it's sort of like some hosts are just wired for really potent immune responses and some are wired for really weak immune responses. And it turns out that they're wired for different what we call life history priorities. Hosts that respond really strongly to infection often survive better than hosts who are poor responders against infectious agents. That kind of makes intuitive sense. But the other piece of it is that there is often a trade-off with reproduction. 
So hosts who make really strong immune responses and survive infectious diseases often end up having not enough energy to put into their own reproduction. So they can end up living a really long time, but they don't leave very many offspring compared to hosts who, who maybe don't fight off infections that well, but they save their energies to invest in having babies. I've observed this myself in my own work on a population of wild sheep, but other workers in the ecology and evolution of, of infectious diseases have, have observed this in other species too. It seems to be a general pattern. There's even some anthropologists who've done some important work in human interactions with worms and discovered that women who have really potent anti-worm responses have much lower birth rates than women who don't purge the worms so quickly from their guts. So there really does seem to be a trade-off between investing in your immune response to survive and investing in reproduction to, you know, to, to have high evolutionary fitness. Uh, does this appear to be heritable? You know, for a certain female or woman, you know, they have a very high response to these worms. Uh, will their children and grand- grandchildren be the same? Yeah, that's an important question. When it has been looked at, yes, there seems to be a heritable genetic component, both in humans and in other animals. Yeah, so I, I really do think responses to things like worms are actually a really important part of our evolutionary history. We've been co-evolving with worms for 400 million years or so. Well, one thing that might be important, and it's easy to do with sheep, but if you get two sheep, one that's very susceptible, one that's not, and you do a fecal transplant from one to the other, I'm thinking that maybe the microbiome might play a large role. You know, I'm sure the worms themselves have their own microbiome. And then when they get into a creature, especially in the gut, you know, there's a lot of bacteria and stuff in there. Maybe there's a, uh, the bacteria are, are helping in the, uh, you know, the rejection of the worm or the immune response to the worm in certain creatures. Maybe you could tease that out by doing that. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, your instinct is right on that the worms are definitely not alone in the gut, right? There's all these microbes and we're uh, learning more and more about the interactions there. Some of them are exactly as you suggest, that hosts who have a particularly worm-conducive microbiota are the ones who end up with really high worm burdens, almost no matter what the immune system of the host does, right? It's sort of like a whole other axis of inducing variation among hosts in their worm burden is how the worms interact with the microbes that are also in the gut. We've done some fecal transplants along the lines that you suggest. Um, In this case, I'll turn to our work on mice, where we can show that a fecal transplant from, say, a wild animal into a laboratory animal can dramatically decrease the susceptibility of of the lab animals to things like influenza, but increase their susceptibility to worm infections. So the the microbes seem to have a really important role to play in 
both explaining worm infections and germ infections in hosts, almost independent of what the immune systems are doing. So your, your instinct's right on. Okay. I guess also, too, if you had a population of mice and you infected them deliberately with a certain kind of worm, and some were sick, some were old, some were young, I mean, I guess you could do probably a multifaceted experiment where you could kind of use the worm infection to explore the different manifestations of the mouse phenotype and see, like, which ones are more susceptible and why, and maybe make a, you know, correlate more factors in a general way. Yeah, we do some things along along those lines. We We do... One thing that I've been working on for about five years that's been a really fun system to develop is called rewilding, where we take inbred genotypes, inbred strains of laboratory mice, and we put them outdoors. And we give them worms in their bellies, controlled doses of worms, just like you suggested. But we let then the natural environment sort of titrate in, including the microbes that they acquire by foraging on real wild foods, clover and blueberries, by digging in the dirt to make burrows and escape escape the New Jersey summer heat. And when mice start doing those things, having natural microbial exposures, we are able to unpick a little bit the contribution of the mice, because we can control the age and genotype of the mice, right? But they vary in their behaviors that expose them to microbes, and we can track that translates to differences in the rate at which they purge worms from their guts. So it's a pretty powerful experimental system for for basically asking with with a given experimental challenge of worms, why do hosts vary so much and how quickly they purge them? So when, when mice are rewilded, do they tend to react more strongly to the worms or less strongly? They tend to react quite strongly, but in a way that is not productive for clearing the worms. So the potency of the immune response is, is, is great when they're out of doors, but it's not in the direction that promotes that weep and sweep response. It's it's sort of like, I think to put it in an intuitive way, it's almost like all those microbial exposures that the mice get when they're outdoors, get the immune system's attention pointed at germs and away from worms. And the worms can then kind of benefit and, and get obtain more chronic infections. They can survive longer in the guts. Well, maybe there's a, a limit to capacity, as you kind of alluded to before. You can't do everything, you know, as a creature. So Maybe it's less energetic to simply keep the worms at bay, you know, at a low level. Yeah, feed off me, but don't take over everything uh, versus yeah. get rid of them completely. Because, you know, if you're in the wild, you deal with a lot more different, a lot more diversity of microbial and other interaction constantly. So maybe they just, again, the organism just can't do everything. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, that's right. And it's a mutually agreeable compromise, right? <laughs> let's let's tolerate each other for the host and the parasite. Yeah, I think that's right. And certainly the mice seem to be thriving. They can have 10,000 times the worm biomass of mice that are back in lab, but they're shiny, strong. They're as healthy as can be, as far as we can tell. Well, maybe it's the microbes and other things that the mouse is interacting with that actually form, or maybe they cause the worms to go into more of a commensal mode somehow, or they're interacting with the worms, maybe providing metabolites to it, mm-hmm. which offsets the need for the mouse to do it. Or, I mean, I, I guess it can be all kinds of things, but maybe they're changing the nature of the interaction. And again, there's there's more like crosstalk amongst these different domains of microbes and mouse and worm and everything. Yeah, uh, totally. I, I agree completely. I feel in some way that by rewilding the mice, we're kind of putting them back into the natural co-evolved context, right? Where it's a a symbiosis amongst mammal 
worm and germ that again over hundreds of millions of years of evolution that that's been the norm and we may be putting them back in that toward that equilibrium yeah if you take wild mice and you put them in the lab and they already have worms in the wild when they get into the i don't know if you've done this but i guess when they get into the lab you would see like either the worms would get a lot worse or maybe they would disappear because now maybe the mouse's focus is narrowed and maybe the relationship terms either more pathogenic well, I guess it'd be more pathogenic in either way, but uh, you know, the mouse would either get rid of it or be consumed by it. I would say that not enough of that kind of work has been done, but I think you would expect, especially if when animals get domesticated, they're better fed than they are when they're wild and all that sort of thing. They may have a very different resource budget that may behoo- it may behoove them now to clear the nematodes or it may make them more tolerant than nematodes. I think it could go either direction depending upon details of the of the energetic budgets there yeah well i interviewed a guy that you may want to speak to uh jonathan clayton he's the, called the monkey doc so they observed that i guess monkeys that came in from the wild after about two weeks their microbiomes totally changed mm. and it became actually very similar to their keepers you know the people in the, <laughs> the unnatural environment in the lab their microbiome switched literally within two weeks and they haven't done the rewilding that I know in the sampling, but and it's funny you guys have done one way, they've done the other way. Yeah, this might be interesting to see that work, and that might inform what uh, what you're doing with the mice. Did you say Kaplan was his name? Uh, Clayton, Jonathan Clayton. Clayton. Yeah, he's called anecdotally, he's called the Monkey Doc because mm-hmm. he hangs out with monkeys. So yeah, microbes definitely change really quickly with a change in environment or a change in diet. It takes for sure less than two weeks for the microbiota to sweep completely different. I guess uh, I guess you wouldn't want to like you know have a a mouse in the lab wild it and then unwild it and wild it and unwild it it'd be too much <laughs> of the mouse if you go one way each time I guess that's okay. Well, we have thought about it though. We one thing we wondered is okay. We figure that if we take a lab mouse and put her outside and then after a while we put her back inside, her microbiota you know would change really quickly both ways. But what we don't know is what effect this would have on her immune system. Because the immune system has a lot more, we think it has a lot more memory to the system than the microbiota does. So just because a mouse moves from environment A to environment B and back to environment A, the immune system, in particular, the lymphocytes, the T cells and B cells, will retain memory, potentially lifelong memory of antigens, you know, pieces of parasites, pieces of microbes that it sees in only one of those environments. So we thought about what if we rewild the mice, we see these big changes in how their immune systems work. How long would their immune systems still act like they were outdoors, even if we brought them indoors, given this sort of memory that we expect the immune system to retain? So we thought about it. We just haven't gotten around to that yet. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's, that actually would be interesting. It'll be a whole source of a whole nother layer of experimentation. You know, if you get mice with certain knockouts, if they could survive in the wild, let's say for two weeks, then mm-hmm. you bring them back. You know, what happens when you do the same kind of experimentation on them versus their, their lab partners that never left? Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you guys done any of that or, or you're not there yet? We've done some of it. We're about to do more this summer. Um, we've just been rewilding mice this week, actually. Um, you've hit us right at the start of our field season. And we're planning after a certain period of rewilding to give them some challenges back in the lab afterwards. So we're just starting in that direction. But there, there are researchers at the, for example, at the NIH and also at University of Minnesota who've done a bit of that already. And what they have shown is that mice seem to be better models for human immunology if, the, if you've given them 
some antigenic history. Like uh, if you've given their immune systems some memories of microbes, and then you give them these really defined challenges that immunologists like to use in lab settings, they perform more like human immune systems with that knowledge that they bring in, that immune memory that they bring in. And it makes sense, right? Because most people don't live in a bubble the way lab mice do, right? The super clean breeding facilities and maintenance facilities that lab mice are kept in, that's not a good mimic for human childhood. (laughs) And so it makes sense that if you give the mice a little microbial history of exposure that educates their immune systems to what microbes are like, then you challenge them with stuff. It's going to look a lot more like a real human or other wild mammal in how they deal with infection because their immune systems bring those memories. The, their immune systems bring, bring those memories basically to the new challenge that's offered. Well, I guess it's like studies of children that grow up on farms you know, that are exposed to all kinds of stuff and they have less asthma and less allergies versus kids that grew up in the city. So, I mean, even though we're not in a lab, we still have similar types of uh, removal from the wild versus some people that may live in the wild. You know? Absolutely right. Yeah. So we're so modeling are, some of that in a while taking advantage of some of the powerful tools of mouse immunology, you know, the ability, yeah. like you said, to order, oh, let's study how this knockout might perform. You know, you can't, you can do that with lab mice. And we're trying to harness the scientific power of mouse models of immunology while also bringing in that natural environmental exposure piece. Yeah, that's interesting. So what other major like hypotheses are you testing? I like your methods. They're really interesting. What else are you looking at that's large? So I guess the other thing that I would say is that We're also really interested, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to get a little more directly to it. We're really interested in direct interactions between parasites or symbionts that are sharing the same host. And in fully wild mouse populations, and also via collaboration with folks in Indonesia and the Netherlands, in human populations, we're using deworming treatments as an experimental perturbation to reveal how worms might interact with other parasites. So the the main example I'll give you here is in many, many people who have worms in their bellies, again, the over a billion, a lot of them also have malaria infections. And we became super interested in how hosts might fight off both malaria and worms at the same time. They require very different kinds of immune responses, et cetera. Well, long story short, I'll cut to the punchline on this. We discovered together with our collaborators in Indonesia and the Netherlands that you actually need to understand something about whether the worms are feeding on blood if you want to understand how they compete with malaria infections directly inside the host. So in essence, because malaria parasites um, need red blood cells, they parasitize host red blood cells. It turns out that malaria parasites really suffer competition with blood feeding worms. And we found that if you deworm people, you know, you always think deworming is going to improve human health, but if you deworm people and their worms are blood feeders that had been keeping malaria in check, you can deworm them and release the malaria to replicate like crazy. So there are these, these other kinds of interactions among symbionts within human bodies that that we're also really interested in pursuing. And in this case, 
I always draw on my ecology and evolution background. This is like resource competition, right? The worms and the malaria, and of course the host are competing for access to those red blood cells. They all need it for their own purposes. And um, an ecological perspective helps unpick some of that complexity and predict things like deworming, not improving host health in the case of competition with malaria. I'd rather, you know, things compete for my affections instead of compete to eat me. Yeah, uh, fair enough. So what, um, have you looked closer at a, a study like that? So if someone has malaria and they do also have a blood feeding, you know, nematode or worm, do those worms, I guess each keeps the other at bay, but what happens to the worms that eat, you know, the parts of the blood that contain the malaria? Do they get sick? I don't know, do they produce a different metabolite or waste product that, I don't know, that's, that's utilized in a different way? Can you even tell? Yeah, we've wondered that. We we don't know yet whether worms actually will eat the malaria. Worms have a big size advantage. I think malaria will not eat the worm, but the worms could eat the malaria parasites, but would they just get poisoned? You know, malaria parasites actually, when they're cleaving hemoglobin and eating the globin, they're left with heme, which is basically a poison that they have to sort of compartmentalize, crystallize to say, you know, keep the toxin from harming them. It may be that the worms wouldn't want to actually eat a malaria-infected red cell because it would have that poison in it. We've thought a lot about that, but we haven't yet figured out a way to to detect whether the worms are eating the malaria-infected red blood cells. Well, can't you feed them a little bit of a blood meal, you know, a healthy versus a malaria-infected blood meal? Well, uh, you have to have pretty clever culture conditions because these worms feed on you know, blood flowing fast in capillaries sort of thing. It's not like you can just put them in a Petri dish with blood. They don't survive very well in in vitro. You really need to have a a system that mimics where they would be feeding on that blood in vivo. And and to my knowledge, nobody has has sorted that out. I mean, does malaria affect mice? Maybe you can have, you know, worms feed on mice with malaria without and then harvest the worms and look at them and see how they're different. Well, we've done some of that, and we've shown in mice, likewise, that blood-feeding worms outcompete malaria for red blood cells. But we haven't been able to get at the same question. What we really need to do is pull the worms out of the hosts and look inside their guts and see how much malaria DNA, for example, we could detect inside the, the bodies of the worms. We just haven't done that. But the, I just wanted to close the loop then on the, the health implications of this worm-malaria interaction that we found in this human population. I think what we want to argue is not, not that we want to stop deworming programs, but that when we're deworming in populations that also have malaria, you'd better co-treat, right? I guess what we're saying uh, to physicians is, please consider treating the whole patient rather than one thing at a time, right? And if you only deworm without treating the rest of what this patient has, you could actually make that patient sicker. I don't know. It sounds like the, uh, the experimentation you're doing, it has so many facets. It's kind of like crazy. I, I, how have you decided to focus and what experiments do you want to do, but you just can't do it yet for lack of resources, but you think they would be uh, super informational? Yeah. So one, I guess one of the great things about being a scientist is one, always has like 1 million more ideas than one can possibly pursue, right? And so the fun thing then is prioritizing and also realizing that the first three questions you decide to tackle are each going to open a hundred more questions, right? And then you'll have to reprioritize and re-sift. You know, it's a very active process, 
but it is constrained by resources, as you suggested. And one can never predict where the grant funding might come from, right? And, and in the end, one does have to have those resources to pay for the experiments. So it's good to have lots of ideas and have priorities for how you want to pursue them. Then you have to apply for funding. And then once you have some, some funding come in and the first round of results come in, you sort of redirect, refine. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a very iterative process like that. And in my case, I guess I feel lucky to be an evolutionary biologist and ecologist because I have, I would argue, a lot wider range of systems at my disposal to tailor to the questions at hand. So I work on lab mice in the lab sometimes. I work on lab mice outdoors, as we've discussed. I work on wild mice outside. I work on wild sheep. I'm starting to work on wild elephant seals and by a collaboration with physicians and people doing epidemiological studies, I even work on human populations. So I feel very lucky that I'm able to draw on such a wide array of different systems and tailor the choice of system to best address the question at hand. Do you deal with uh, you know, viral infection or bacterial infection of, of mice or other organisms? You know, you're looking at the parasites interaction, but maybe it'll be too much experimentation. I don't know. But do you ever look at it again when the, the mouse is sick and then it's you know, rewilded, let's say, in a sick condition, does it get better faster? Again, if it's if it has a virus infection, but it also has a worm, you know, what's the dynamic there? Yeah, so as you rightly noted, I work more on parasites, so malaria and worms and that kind of thing, but I don't totally ignore the viruses and the bacterial pathogens. I guess where they mostly come into my work is when I'm in working in a really wild population, right? Because in a truly wild population, you absolutely cannot ignore viral and bacterial pathogens. I guess the example I would give there is I've been involved in a long-term study of wild mice, paramiscus or deer mice and white-footed mice in Virginia, where um, we discovered that, and, and they're known to be reservoirs for things like hantavirus, and we discovered that the, the mice who had hantavirus as well as worm infections seemed to be the longest lived mice in the whole population. And we we're trying to figure out whether something about having worm co-infection makes the hantavirus less likely to kill the mouse. And that's a, another work in progress. So what, I don't know, what do you see as the future of your work? What, what big questions, uh, just to recap, do you think you'll be able to answer maybe in the next few years? So I will be able to, I think in the next few years, I will make some progress on my overarching question of why do hosts vary so much in immune responsiveness by continuing to focus on the rewilding system. I'll just stick with that one for now. We've really got the system rolling at this point, And I feel now we can really start to statistically even dissect the contributions of host genotype, host age and amount and type of environmental experience to how their immune system works, including how well they purge worms. So I feel like low-hanging fruit in the next few years is that sort of statistical dissection of the contributions of genetics and environment to mammalian immune function. Well, very good. Andrea, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? I have a website, algram.princeton.edu is probably the most informative, but they can also follow me on Twitter at Graham Unology if they want the latest updates. Okay. 
Well, very good. Andrea, thank you for coming. It's been a super interesting call. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your questions and all the best. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.